Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a believer in the power of diversity. Diversity is fundamental to life. Healthy, vibrant, diverse soils, healthy, diverse foods, healthy humans. I mean, the diversity is core. And we, we coexist with trillions of bacteria, yeast, mold, and other fungi. And yet, um, I mean, the, the, the secret to healthy gut microbiome is diversity, diversity is diversity. And yet our food system um, has moved far away uh, from diversity, uh, far away from the vibrancy of a living food systems food system. Um, on today's show, we're going to be talking about the concentration crisis in America's food system and what this crisis means for our health, the environment, and the structures of our economic systems. Later in the show, we're going to be talking with the executive director of Marble Seed, Laurel St- Lori Stern. But first, we welcome Austin Frederick. Um, he is the deputy director at Yale University's Thermo- Thurman Arnold Project. It's an antitrust initiative. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Austin. Thank you. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Um, my family's lived in Iowa for about seven generations now, kind of the northeast part. Um, I'm the first one in my family to go to college. I went to Grinnell College down the road, and then I did grad school up at UW-Madison. And now I kind of do a lot of research and writing kind of related to the food system. And um, I, 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 you have a wonderful article out there, and it was actually printed in the American Conservation, about um, the outsourcing of American food. So talk, let's talk about that article. Well, what's funny about that one is it was actually printed in American Conservative. Um, I'm very conscious of what I think, what I find really interesting right now is we live in such a hyper-polarized society that honestly, I really do believe like reforming the American food system is weirdly bipartisan. 100%. And, and I will use um, bipartisan as kind of a, a polarized word. I mean, if it's bipartisan, but I think it's a form yeah. of unity. And I actually yeah. think animals are, I mean, we want to live in, um, and, and this can get misunderstood because we just don't talk about it, but we're diverse animals and life is complex. And how do we, you know, raise our food and be healthy humans and have a society of well being and be less stressed out and, you know, be able to pay for our kids' soccer lessons and watch their, um, college graduations, their wedding, or they're getting a great job. I mean, how do we just have a living society? Yes, and I just think food takes the temperature down and all that, and just, because it's not, it's, I mean, we all do it. It's so simple. The system we have now is radical. It's like, I've been very conscious of publishing in the American conservative, but also like the progressive. You know what I mean? Like, it's the same message. And like you just kind of maybe, you highlight different things, but people on both sides love it. Um, and so, like, that whole article honestly came about because as weird as it sounds as apples. Um, the two things that stuck out to me, I was mulling my head at the time, was I read something about how, like, 60 or 70% of apple juice in America actually comes from China. Let's repeat and that because, actually, just- I was shocked by that. I, I mean, because I, I, I grew up with so many apples, Bayfield. I mean, yeah. I, I think of, I think of <laughs> apples. I mean, but 60 oh, yeah. to 70% of our apple juice is coming from China? So I'm going to say with you, I love apples. Like, my grandpa had an apple orchard. I grew up pruning apple trees. Um, I just love how, you know what I mean? My, my favorite was Snow White Apple growing up because it was the first apple and it was light. But um, so when I saw that stat, so what's driving that stat is, like, when you produce apples, the main apple juice, your main cost is labor. You know, it's picking the apples. And so it's, like, clear, like, oh, wait, for some reason, it is cheaper to pay someone halfway across the world to pick an apple 
process it into a liquid and ship it across the world than it is to do it here. And on top of it, you know, I'm grow- I grew up in Cedar Rapids and like all the apple orchards in my youth are just gone. I mean, and it's not like they were turned into subdivisions. They're just corn. So it's like, what's going on here? Like that truly was the genesis of that article is how did all the kind of local apples go away and why is my apple juice at Hy-Vee now coming from China? And so like what I realized is kind of like our, most of our clothing stuff you buy at Walmart Target, it's been offshored. So a lot of anything that's labor intensive for um, produce, for food, has shifted offshore because that way you, know, you can hire a 12-year-old to pick it. You know, the government's going to look the other way for labor regulations, look the other way for environmental regulations. So that's why, like, when you go to get produce right now, you know, it's all coming from, you know, Mexico, what have you. It's like this entire race to the bottom. We're going to talk more about offshoring um, uh, throughout this segment. But I I want to – one of the little things you mentioned in that article was a 1935 guide commissioned by the Federal Writers Project on Iowa and agriculture. So tell us some of those – some details from that 1935, about less than 100 years ago. What was um, Iowa's agriculture like? Well, I first want to recommend to anyone, Laura, that buy the guide for – just buy the guide for your state, buy it from Minnesota, what have you. They're just so fun to read because um, they're part travelogue, part like encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. But like that moment in time. And the Iowa section was fascinating because, I mean, you drive Iowa, it, it's the same crop. It's corn, soy, and, and confinement buildings. That's it. But reading that, guys, you saw regional production. And like I, the only thing I knew of growing up was Muscatine, Iowa, down along the Mississippi River is known for its melons. Sandy soil is good for melon production. And so what you'll see in the summer in Iowa is, People in pickup trucks selling muscatine, musk melons is what we call them. But what this guy showed me is not only was there that, but you know, Downport, Iowa used to have tons of, you know, onion production because of sandy soil. Northern Iowa was, um, you had some beet production. Western Iowa, you had some great production along, um, oh my God, the Lowe's Hills. Southern Iowa, you had peach production. You just like, you know what I mean? Like, just imagine being able to go to Hy-Vee or like your grocery store in the summer and you just actually able to buy food from your state and, I don't know. It's kind of, it's so funny because it seems so, we romanticize that, but like that was the norm and we've, we've deviated so far from the norm. Like the system we have now is radical and kind of what a lot of people are working towards is returning to a more traditional system that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so in that uh, 1935 guide, it was um, currants were, you know, uh, was a, an agricultural product from Iowa. Now I've had currants in my yard for a long time. They're delicious. Red currants and apples. I mean, you can't beat that. I mean, you can make red currant and apple pancakes. You can make red currant apple scones. I mean, and and I mean, not only is it good for us eating, but then think about the ecosystem that it actually supports having those berry bushes and the diverse incomes potential for the diverse farmers and the healthiness and the vitality of that. Um, did we lose something when we when we were kind of told – Farmers get big or get lost. Did we did we lose? I don't know if I want to say the soul of American agriculture. Though I think you were featured in a video that that also said that did, you know um, how, we did lose something, didn't we? Yeah, we lost culture. I mean, this the thing. This is so vivid in my mind. We saw my husband and I watched that film Coda, one best picture, like a year or two ago. And it's about you know working class New England fishing family, and there's a scene where the fishermen struggling, corporations coming in, squeezing them. And at the same time, it cuts to the scene of his daughter at a school lunch, and she's eating, like, square pizza, you know, like, with sausage on it. And you're just like, why Why is a kid along the New England coast eating, like, a pork? 
product where they should be eating fish for the struggling fishermen. Like the, the collapse of regional diets is kind of my point here. And that has been so lost in American culture. Um, there used to be seasonality, regionalness. Like what we in Iowa should be different than California just based on our climate alone. And we were recycling our money locally instead of having what I'm consuming in Iowa being some square pizza, you know, God knows where all those ingredients are coming from. And okay, so um, let's let's kind of quickly quickly give us um, a, a history lesson of agriculture in Iowa. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I mean, tough question, but no, no, I, I'm laughing because it's just like I mean, for me, do my doing my recent research is what I realized is just how much of it we didn't talk about the Native American history growing up, and just mm-hmm. so much of Iowa agriculture is rooted in genocide. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like the agriculture has a very dark undercurrent mm-hmm. um, that's kind of been papered over. And for me, that's personally what I've learned a lot in the last few years. But what you saw in Iowa is, I mean, what's unique about Iowa agriculture, especially as compared to California, is it actually had a family farm tradition in the way we allocated land to white settlers, which California never had. California has always been kind of a plantation, large, you know, large land holdings. It, it never had that small scaleness. So even though I'm, I'm talking about consolidation, land holding in the Midwest, generally speaking, is pretty diffuse. Um, that said, I mean, you had basically the farm system collapse in the 20s and the 30s, and that was kind of a combination of overproduction from World War One, but then also the Dust Bowl and just over, you know, general overproduction. So here comes the farm bill system that's trying to basically, how do you? Kind of strike a balance. I mean, so much of farming agriculture is how you strike an ecological balance between short-term and long-term needs and personal needs and communal needs. Then what we've seen in decades since is just a slow chip away of that. And I call the current farm bill the Wall Street Farm Bill because it's all predicated on how does Pepsi pay the least amount as possible to make corn, you know, chips and pop. It doesn't care about that ecological balance. It's all about overproduction of a few key things. Um, you see it when you walk into Dollar General now of like, you know what I mean? It's basically just a handful of commodities that you can purchase. And so that's kind of what's happened now is as the farm bill shifted to the interests of Wall Street, you know, places like Iowa paid the price where the consolidation of Wall Street has consolidated wealth in Iowa where the land never produces as much as it's producing now, but all the wealth is leaving these communities. And I would argue I was, you know, dancing around the notion of being an extraction colony, no different than West Virginia was for coal in the 19th century. Yeah, and um, I think there. I think slowly, um, people are um, there. There's an increasing understanding that um, to have um, a healthy planet, um, healthy individuals, we need healthy soil, and that idea is spreading. Um, and so, does the commoditization of agriculture um, feed a healthy gut microbiome? No. <laughs> <Ta-da>! <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. You know what I mean? For like this national like national thing for you know you want you want a product that's going to have a long shelf life highly processed addictive and that is none of those things right we need a living system so we're going to take a break you're listening to food freedom radio i'm laura headland and we're talking with austin frederick he is the uh, deputy director at yale university's thermal thurman R. arnold project um and we'll be right back
work it out. We, we can go back to currants in Iowa and having that be a really great, um, yeah, that's what we want. We want to work it out. We want currants in Iowa. So this is Laura Hedlund, and you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. And also, for the first time, I am broadcasting live on LinkedIn. So if you're on LinkedIn and you haven't yet um, connected with me, um, do connect, Laura Hedlund, H-E-D-L-U-N-D. And um, we can also have that be a place that we can comment on these conversations. Um, Austic Frederick is the Deputy Director of Yale's University's Thurman Arnold Project. So I've said that a couple of times. Tell me, what is that project? And, and uh, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so the Thurman Arnold Project is a new antitrust initiative at Yale. And our whole goal is to kind of, you know, reinvigorate kind of this lost scholarship of, you know, looking at big tech, big ag, you know, big pharma, and what to do about these overly concentrated markets. And so a lot of what I do um, is we've, you know, I've put together conferences over the years on these issues to bring awareness, help scholars who are working on it. But then also, like, you know, we've been educating students on who want to, you know, become lawyers, go work at the Department of Justice. Um, I mean, what's been kind of great is two years ago, we asked students to basically write legal cases of how do you bring an antitrust case against Google, Facebook, and all Apple. And lo and behold, the, the Google case by DOJ was announced this week. So it's been kind of cool to see that, you know, snowball. And I, I think our audience knows, but why would you, why is antitrust important? Why is understanding that important? Um, that's a really good question. I mean, what I really realized is, and it's so simple, but I don't know why it took me forever to realize is, no business, every business goal is monopoly. Not every. Most businesses, your goal is monopoly because that's where profit is. Competition is, you know what I mean? It's hard. It's ruthless. Um, most companies, that's your goal is to get to a concentrated market. I just think of when I was little by my parents' house, we had three gas stations going at it every day. Fast forward 20 years later, now there's just one Casey's. You know, that way you can kind of goose your margins. And so you have this inherent tension between government wanting competition because it's good for innovation, it's good for workers, you know, it's just better for society, but then business not wanting it. And I actually just think this is a natural ebb and flow of capitalism society of markets get too concentrated. They're going to have to kind of come in and clean them up. You know, we've done this before meatpacking. So that's kind of, I mean, that to me is so important. And at the end of the day, antitrust is really, these are moral conversations over power. How much power should one person have? How many hogs can one person own? And there's no, these aren't simple questions. These are things we have to grapple with in a democratic society. One of the big problems I have with um, concentration is the um, um, externalizing the consequences. So um, one person gets all the money and the rest of the people are left with polluted water. <laughs> and, 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 you know, um, and uh, so um, the 34th annual farming conference, it used to be called Moses Marble Seat Conference, is coming up on February 23rd and 25th. And you're going to be giving a keynote address there, the concentration crisis. The concent- con- well, tell me about your keynote address. Yeah, yeah, I'm laughing, Laura, just because you're talking to an Iowa and then externalized costs and water quality is. Oh, well, let's yeah, talk about that for a second because there's, I mean, it's, to me, it almost, it feels um, almost overwhelming to start thinking about how bad uh, the agriculture, our food system is for water. And again, if our goal is healthy, vital, happy lives, why are we doing this to water? And we, what we do to water, we do to ourselves. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't trust any water. I don't trust water in Iowa anymore. I mean, it is, and it happens slowly. You know, it's, it's kind of like a lobster in a pot. And 
you know, my husband, he's from the East Coast, and he's the one that first pointed out to me that how bizarre it is in the summer in Iowa that two-thirds of the beaches will be closed just because, you know, the pollution's too bad, what have you. You just can't go on the beaches. I mean, he made his jokes besides the fact that we have beaches in Iowa. Ha, ha, ha. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, it's quality of life. You don't, you can't, people don't want to live in that. And, like, I, I just think of the conversation had last week with Jody is that's what we want. We want young families, you know, the three, you know, three children, small, or we can have, you know, many of them, or we can have these things where one person kind of controls everything and then everyone else is a low wage worker for them. And by the way, that usually that baron doesn't even live in the community. They extract all the wealth. So, you know, if they live in Miami or what have you. Because this can so seem honest- so, because it can seem so overwhelming because it's like, yeah, nitrates in the water. Um, I, I actually, um, I saw this, uh, it was produced several years ago and it aired on uh, public uh, television this last weekend, a story about the Mississippi River and the intense pollution that was in the Mississippi River and how uh, like Republicans like Durenberger and Vento, they kind of all got together and all these people were working on it and voila, we actually cleaned the river. And I, I think those stories of hope are needed, but in order to get to that point, we actually have to be able to open and see what's present and the current food system how we eat is is causes nitrates in the water dead zones i mean the 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 the, we need a water healthy egg system and 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 how does concentration play into that i mean i think that's so key is you got to have the hope but you have to be really honest and that to me is the main reason why i've been working on this book is we need to have an honest conversation over where we are now um, cause if you, you have to have an honest conversation to know what went wrong, what, what went off the rails, how do we fix it and how do we move forward, but also doing it in such a way that's inspiring to people. Red current. So <laughs> yeah, current. No, I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's so many other berries. There's Popeye's. I mean, there's all these cool local foods that like, you know what I mean? Just, that's what excites me is I- what it could be. Cause I think people, people, I've done these talks and I've talked with enough groups, met with enough people, interviewed enough people. The world's dark. No one wants more dark. People want hope of what it could be and they find that inspiring. I like talking about robber bands in the food system because it kind of makes them cartoonish and people also know. And, and so you also kind of laugh at them. Like the fact that there's a hog baron in Iowa with a private jet in the home in Naples, Florida that he flies back and forth to, that is people inherently in their gut feel that's morally wrong. And so that's how to me is like you both inspire, but then you're kind of laughing at them in a weird way. Um, yeah. So, um, so you're going to come up with a book. Tell us about when it's going to be released and, and the ideas um, that you have um, in that book. Yeah. So this book is derived from um, I published an article in Vox two years ago about a hog baron. How did the most powerful political donor in Iowa, be, you know, how did a hog farmer become that person? So I told the story of how he basically captured the regulatory system in Iowa. I personally wanted to do that because someone in a bar in Des Moines, Iowa, told me he had a jet with the words wouldn't pigs fly on it. I also want to understand how did he amass power? What corners did he cut? So I know from a regulatory standpoint, what do we need to do to fix this? So I wrote this article and ended up getting the book deal off. It basically writes a book uh, tentatively called Barons, profiling seven different Barons in the food system. Everything from, I have a milk baron that's known as, you know, they sell the brand Fairlife in grocery stores, so yeah. they used to own it. Yeah, Driscoll Strawberries is my berry baron, too. <laughs> I know. That he one doesn't... is really, that's been the most shocking baron of the book, 
because they basically took the chicken model production and applied it to berry production and offshored it. Um, mm-hmm. So I have these other ones. But so for Moses, I'm actually going to, this is the first time ever I previewed the book and just kind of, I'm going to use one or two narratives to kind of show, hey, this is what happened. Like, this is the state of the milk market. These are the corners that are cut. Here's what we can do about it. I mean, this is, these are conversations we should have with what should the milk market look like in America? You know, that is, these are decisions we make and what kind of milk, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I just kind of love talking about this stuff. Yeah. Well, and here's a little statistic. So the share of each dollar spent on food that winds up in the hands of farmers has fallen from 53 cents in 1946 to 14 cents um, recently today. So this is, um, and, and the, the farmers have been um, on the front lines of this consolidation. Yeah, I mean that to me is that that stat alone shows you the shift from the New Deal farm bill to the Wall Street farm bill, and who 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 gets that share of the dollar. And I wouldn't even say farmers, the real communities. I mean that is, it's not the right word, but driving real Iowa right now is like driving the Jersey Turnpike to me. It just does. The countryside no longer feels like the countryside. It's just all kind of dead. Mm-hmm. You don't see an animal. Everything's brown. And you're like, this is the best farmland in the world. But it's just not, you know what I mean? It's just not alive. I can't even go into a restaurant in Iowa and get food from Iowa anymore. You know, it's all this like low quality Cisco crap. Garbage, sorry. Pardon my language. Right. And there, I mean, there's the, the angst that we feel and the anger and the, the, how people are able to almost to harvest that anger towards other types of ways of gaining power. And how do we, how do we counter that with, um, I'm just going to go with red currents again. <laughs> you know, the power of red currents and the power of clean water and healthy food and just uh, almost the power of a power of love in our communities. I really do think school meals are the help here. Mm-hmm. Imagine if you put red currants in the school. First of all, you guaranteed a contract for that farmer, which you talk to any farmer. No one likes – farmer's markets aren't fun. You get rained out. You lose money. It's That consistent contract from the school is such a lifesaver. And also putting – respecting the craft of cafeteria workers. You know, so much of what they do – I mean, a lot of people just want to work with their hands, cook something from scratch, take the red currants that come in raw, make some scones out of it, what have you, instead of just – you know, taking some frozen food from Cargill and cooking it. Being and a lunch is, lady or a lunch guy is a fun job. I mean, it's an important job. It's so it's, it's it's a living it, job. It, it is, and it's educational, too. You can teach culture to kids. You can do so much with it. And that, to me, that's the hope. I mean, that's what we can do locally. And you're, here's the thing. Tons of people are doing this. A lot of school districts, you know, they might say, we only want pasture milk for our kids. We only want blank. And just... They're such game changers, and that is something you can work with a school board to do. It's like, what do you want your kids to eat? Do you want them to eat, you know, some tomato picked by a 12-year-old from Baja, California, or some tomato grown down the street? Yeah, and school gardens at the same yeah, time. School so, gardens. So I mean, the, yeah. Home economics, like there's such – I didn't learn how to debone a chicken until I was 28. You know, I had to literally sit and watch a YouTube video, and like there's – I mean, people – there's such we have such there's a reason why we used to have these different classes and there's a way to update them so they don't have old traditional gender norms or stereotypes that have you in them but these are important skills for people to have and people enjoy it kids enjoy it it's just you know it's experimental learning it's applying the concept you learned elsewhere and so Austin we're at the last minute is there anything else you want to say or want to point to a website or something 
Um, I encourage people to um, sign up for the Moses Conference. I'm just so happy it's in person. I've been going to it virtually the last few years and just to be in person. And I truly think the whole Driftless region is some of the prettiest parts of this country. That's just my personal opinion. But I don't know. I would say to me, I want to be overwhelm your listeners of being like everything's so dark and gloomy, but like it's a big deal if you can work with your school district, your local school to, you know, get those procurement contracts. I mean, you're changing the farmer's life when you get those. Yeah, know your farmer. So uh, thank you so much, um, um, Austin Frederick, um, the Deputy Director at Yale University's Thurman Arnold Project. Um, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll be talking with Lori Stern, the Executive Director of Marble Seed, about the upcoming uh, Moses Conference. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a believer in the power of diversity. Diversity is fundamental to life. Um, healthy, diverse soil, healthy, diverse foods, healthy humans. The secret to healthy gut microbiome? Diversity, diversity, diversity. Yet our food system has moved far away, far, far away from this basic vibrancy of a living food system. How do we get it back? How do we end the consolidation crisis? And I I thank um, Austin Frederick so much um, for being with us the last segment. And right now we're joined by Lori Stern, and she is the executive director of Marble Seed. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Yeah. So, Lori, uh, tell us a little bit about Marble Seed. So essentially, uh, Marble Seed was an organization uh, that was founded at the start of the USDA organic label, uh, primarily to assist and support farmers as they make the transition to organic production. And we um, continue to lean into that history of our organization and kind of expanded in looking um, niche and show organic production, looking at some of these other um, impacts to uh, creating resilient farming systems that are organic and regenerative and um, and diverse, as you mentioned at the top. Yeah, and um, also to protect the integrity of what that word means. I mean, that's sort of what um, the activists were concerned about, greenwashing, and how do we really say what's or- organic, and, and how do we determine that? And so people got together, and they, they talked a lot. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that... Um, you know, at the outset, the fight was uh, to create a national standard, and uh, you know, now now we're kind of at a, a place where we, to a certain extent, are are having to fight the success of of the label and and the demand um, for for food um, that's raised and produced organically and in the true meaning of what that of what that all entails. So, what is the true meaning of what all that entails? I think you said it really um, brilliantly uh, at the top of this conversation, which is, you know, organic starts with soil and um, and creating healthy soil systems. And when that happens, then there's less pressure of disease, um, less need for external inputs. Farms that are diverse are able to sustain themselves and have uh, it's a, organic is a system. Um, and I think so oftentimes people just think it's an absence of you know, application of chemicals or pesticides, but it really is a systemic look at um, 
at how we farm and how we produce food and raise food and integrating animals into um, systems that are raising grains and vegetables and really getting back to that diversity and um and then you know there's just the the health of the animals and the people that work on those farms and in those operations and you know animals out on grass grazing uh 30% at least of the time for dairy operations so it is it is really a systemic look um at what we do on farms and so, again, I'm going to refer to um, Austin's work, the concentration crisis. And it is a crisis in, in America's food system. Um, so since 1980, America has lost 50% of its cattle farms, 80% of its dairies, 90% of its hog farms. Um, and, and that was um, from uh, uh, 1987 to 2012. And you guys are fighting that trend. Um, have you seen more consolidation? Or do you think... We're having a lot of success. I mean, we we are constantly fighting consolidation, and I, I love that you spoke with Austin. He's actually a keynote at our conference and doing a few other things um, at the end of February. But uh, and I just I'm so grateful for the work that he's doing and kind of elevating this issue, and and it is ongoing. Um, and I don't know. Uh, sometimes it feels like we're small actors in trying to fight against it. But, you know, just, again, that I, I, I beat the same drum around diversity and that theme and what that all means. And I think that we are, we are want, like, existing within a structure of agriculture that is really um, meant to uphold those uh, operations that are not diverse, which then is creating some monocrop systems and things like that, which are really meant to support industrial agriculture, which then makes it possible for this consolidation to occur. I think for us as an organization, we predominantly support and have within the community small, medium, diverse, organic farms. And um, and that, and that and they are fighting the forces of that consolidation, of being able to bring um, products to market, this idea that consumers feel like they have a choice when you go to the shelves of the supermarket and there are all these different options, but to realize that it's like four companies that are producing those, just different labels to segment different consumers, um, it just makes it really difficult. And we hear from farmers how, you know, when we get rid of small grocery stores in their communities, then they can no longer, you know, go to the back door and put their produce into those markets um, because it's just become such an industrialized system. And I guess our hope, and I love that Austin calls it a consolidation crisis because it is, it's not good for consumers. It's not good for farmers. Um, it's not good for fair wages across the supply chain. And it's not good for America. Kind of, it's not good for America. No. And I, I wanted to comment um, uh, on small actors because I like I'm kind of a Lord of the Rings fan, and Frodo ultimately succeeds. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, I, I just but but and here's another quote that I had. It's not a utopian vil, vil, vision, nor does it require radical change. In fact, what we have now, where the largest owner of pigs in America is a Chinese state-linked company, where drug cartels. Are involved are involved in farming the avocados we eat. The system we have now is radical. And how do we get back to our roots? And how do we support people in ways that 
we can have uh, humans eating from healthy soil and um, having healthy water in our food and supporting mm-hmm. water and making that transition. And so, um, what Marble Seed does um, is is a lot of um, a lot of uh, you have a lot of different programs to help um, small independent farmers, like uh, the local food purchase assistant program assistance mm-hmm. program. So, you want to talk about that a bit? Um. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, how is there enough time? Um, yeah, so the, the local food <laughs> purchase assistance is really interesting, and um, and I'm glad you brought that up too. So this is you know funding that came across particularly. I mean, really, the focus is hunger relief, and the focus is also um, procuring food from small to medium scale producers, often those that are kind of marginalized from the larger food system efforts. So we're looking at you know potentially what the USDA calls socially disadvantaged producers. Um, predominantly and, and enabling them to actually get the price that they need, the cost, the cost of actual production to be able to purchase food from those producers to feed their communities. And, um, and so that's a really exciting project. We've had hundreds of applicants, uh, in the state of Wisconsin. That funding is available across the country and in tribal um, nations across the country as well. And so it'll be interesting to see the impact on kind of localized food systems from that effort. Um, because I think if the pandemic taught us nothing, which we'll probably forget shortly what the pandemic taught us, but the smaller systems were more resilient systems. Right, and um, and in the last segment, Austin was talking about um, having school lunch program featuring local foods and how that supports. So having this, um, doing this work on the local food purchase assistance and how you build that up. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I want to talk more about the upcoming farmer conference. I also want to talk about um, some of the other programs you do, like helping uh, mental health um, with farmers right now, and um, and having a network for beginning and BIPOC farmers, and how do we um, go back to a healthy or how do we um, create the healthy, vital um, food system that are that we deserve. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Little red currants on a nice Iowa um, bush. So anyhow, um, this is Laura Headland, and you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. Also, for the first time, I'm link- I'm doing this show LinkedIn Live. So if you're on LinkedIn, reach out to me. Um, and thanks for Bridget for um, um, uh, watching the show on LinkedIn Live. With us right now is Lori Stern. She is with um, Marble Seed. And uh, Lori, tell us about the upcoming um, organic farming conference that you have that Marble Seed does. <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely. So this is our 34th year of hosting the largest annual organic farming conference in the country. And we do that in La Crosse, Wisconsin. This year, it's February 23rd through the 25th. Uh, February 23rd is the day of kind of institutes, longer um, sessions. And then we go into our conference over Friday and Saturday. We have a large exhibit hall with some amazing vendors. And even if you don't have the time to spend a full two days. We're going to make that exhibit hall available um, so you can get an exhibit hall pass. We have a stage down there. 
where there'll be some content and great networking opportunities. So a little bit of something for everyone. So great party. Yeah, it's great. So what's the point? (laughs) What is the point of this conference? What's the purpose of it? I mean, ultimately, I think for, you know, so, so often, um, you know, farming can be isolating. And I think that what we hear over and over again for the conference is just how important it is to come together as a community and network and learn from each other. Uh, Farmers absolutely rely on each other. And I think, and I say it often, but organic farmers in in particular are just so generous of spirit that, you know, it can take them years to, you know, learn a lesson or, or deal with a challenge on their farm. And they're happy to kind of turn around to the farmer next to them coming up behind them and, and give them that learning so that they don't have to make all the mistakes along the way. Particularly when you're dealing with organic systems, you just really have to know and be good stewards of, of the land that you're farming and, um, and kind of understand its idiosyncrasies. And every farm is different, but, uh, enabling a space where farmers can learn from each other is really critical. And all, all of our workshops and conversations um, are really geared toward that farmer, farmer led and farmers learning from each other. And so how do people find out about the conference? <sighs> <We've>, <laughs> you can go onto our website, uh, Marble, and the conference link is on the front page. So that's one way to find out about it. Uh, check us out on Facebook, social media accounts, um, try to get the word out best we can. And um, so, so I also want to talk about some of the other programs. And um, so you have um, the farmer to farmer, but also mental health peer support. And that it seems like this is a time where, well, it seems like, but this is a time where anxiety and depression are, are, are problems throughout our society. And um, so, but, but especially with, uh, like you say, farming can be very isolating. It can be challenging economically. Um, so tell us about those supports and, and what you're observing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's, it's great that there's some funding out there now looking at farmer mental health. I think, you know, we're, again, we're trying to do our best to figure out if there are systems where farmers can turn to each other for support and, um, and kind of look at that peer support just because, I mean, particularly because farming often occurs also in rural communities. I mean, there just aren't enough mental health services just generally. We'll just make that statement for any of us. Um, but when we start to get into, you know, rural, rural service and rural service providers and, and knowing that there are folks out there that need those services, we're just trying to create the space for that to happen and make it be something that people are willing to talk about. So another of Marble Seed's goals is to help uh, beginning and veteran farmers and BIPOC farmers. As we know, the age of farmers, the average age of farmers is quite old. And we have, um, uh, it's a concentration crisis, but we also have a crisis of, um, of uh, a lack of farmers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, for sure. So we have a few efforts along those lines. Um, one is around land access, and uh, that'll be something that happens at the conference, too, is uh, a space for people that are, looking to transition their land to be able to connect with folks that are looking for land. And we do have a program that we do um, in collaboration with two other allied organizations that look specifically at land access for beginning farmers and take a lot of different approaches to ways to um, access farmland. So there is that. We also have uh, 16 years of a mentorship program. Marvel Seed was one of the first kind of farmer mentorships in the country. And so that program has been going for 16 years to agriculture from 
of public health and education is where I spent a lot of my career and then got into food justice issues, well, social justice issues within education and public health, and then food justice issues within that, um, which then led us to get a small farm and have a little bed and breakfast and really wanted to connect people with their food, which then sort of led to opening a farm-to-table restaurant um, where we sourced local year-round, even here in Wisconsin, um, and showed people that you could eat locally year-round. And then the pandemic hit, and uh, this opportunity came up to kind of go back into nonprofit management where I had been in my career. I'd never worked into a rest- in a restaurant until I had one. Um, but happily, you know, this was just a nice marriage of my background in adult education and professional development and bringing in public health and bringing in education and having farmed on a very small scale myself. Uh, so this was just a great opportunity, and I got to kind of um, bring a lot of the relationships that I built in sourcing from farmers. Most of the food that we put on people's plates at the restaurant was from 35 miles from the restaurant. So we were very local and um, in the way that we sourced food and um, did, you know, organic and smaller farms and BIPOC farmers is kind of where we prioritized. So... We have our, our last minute here, and I just I kind of like to get to this heart of um, what food freedom means to you and what it means to be part of a living food system. So when you're sourcing that food 35 miles, you're not getting the uh, apple juice from China, you're, the, the pigs aren't owned by China, but you're actually dealing with people face-to-face. Um, share what that meant for you. I mean, it's, it's an amazing privilege really to be connected to food in that way. And I think I struggle with like, that is, it's a privilege that not everyone has available to them. I mean, I, I mean, there are challenges with living rurally, but then there's also that benefit of having that connection to land and connection to where your food comes from. And it would be amazing to really um, enable other, other people that don't have that connection to still feel it somehow. Um, And at the end of the day, I think everybody, as far as, you know, a fair food system, I mean, everybody needs to have access to healthy food that is good for the planet and good for animals and, and good for our souls and ourselves. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's the trick of this thing is I, I just, I, somebody, uh, shared a, a map on Facebook of where I live in Green County, Wisconsin, and there were all these cheese plants. Everywhere. It used to be, you know, farm, 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 cheese plant in the middle. And that kind of those nodules is, I think, where we have to get back to. Get back to a living food food system and um, more fun. Uh, Lori Stern uh, is with uh, Marble Seed, and uh, their conference is coming up uh, February 23rd to the 25th. So thank you so much, Lori, Lori, for uh, joining us. And thank you for those who are listening also on LinkedIn Live, so you can check that out. Um, And have and thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio, and have an awesome weekend.